Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of White Label American. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to Danielle, Elena, Jeff, Mark, Martha, Sarah, Verena, Brenda, and Jennifer. Thank you for being patrons, making this podcast possible, and building a community. For our first-time listeners, along with regulars who at this moment may not be able to sign up on Patreon, we understand you can still support this podcast via subscribing, sharing, giving five stars, and a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts on. So now let's jump to today's guest. I am honored to have someone who um, I was blessed to be introduced to. Um, But today's guest is a strategic planner, a brand strategist, a savvy public administrator, and a black woman with magic. I'm adding that there, a black woman with magic, amongst many other fantastic attributes that she has going over on the local, national, and international level for over 20 years. And she's been involved in a couple of um, cities with the, on the political scenes in Philadelphia, New York, and around the country. So while I haven't done enough justice with the intro, I'll let her introduce herself properly, and you all will get to meet this, this superstar that I have on today's podcast. So without much further ado, welcome to the show, Desri Peter King Bell. Did I get it right or did that go? Yes, you well, did. Okay. Did. No, you good. You took your time and you got it right. I, I thank you for that. Oh, appreciate that. Appreciate that. So thank you for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm blessed. Um, you know, I'm I'm very blessed to be doing the work that I do and happy to be here. So thank you for having me. Hey, my pleasure. And the honor is all ours that you joined us today. So um, let's begin. So, um, you know, right from the beginning, um, where, where were you born? And, you know, can you introduce us yeah. to your childhood? Yeah, so um, I was raised by a single mother. Um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, in Brookdale Hospital. Um, I have... I'd like to say that I'm a true New York gypsy. I've lived in every single borough. Yes, including Staten Island. Oh, wow. uh, oh we'll count Staten Island today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I am Brooklyn through and through, for better or worse. Um, and I'm from the part of Brooklyn, um, you know, I call it the old Brooklyn, not the new Brooklyn. Oh. So, um, you know, where community was extremely important, um, where we may not have had much, but what we had was the love uh, of each other, of our people, um, and the fight for continued purpose. Uh, and so I, at a very early age, and my mother instilled in me the power of education. Um, I come from a family of uh, Black women warriors, I like to say. Uh, my great-grandmother was one of the first Black women to purchase her house with cash in Brooklyn, New York, on her street. Wow. Um, property we still own today. Um, my grandmother used to tell me 
uh, to speak truth to power, even if it made their ears bleed. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I grew up really always questioning um, and not just accepting things that I heard, read, or saw. Uh, and my mother was a community advocate and activist. Um, and uh, when she was younger, she was one of the first uh, black students to integrate a school um, in Brooklyn, New York. And every single day she was chased home from school until one day uh, she got sick and tired of running from crazy, to be frank, white boys who um, were so interested in showing her that she did not belong. Um, my mother stopped running one day, turned around and faced them. And she said, I deserve to get a quality education and I am here on purpose. And so that became my mantra for my life, which is everything I do is valued at purpose, not position. Oh. So regardless of your position in life, yeah. um, I truly believe that we have a purpose as a people, um, you know, specifically as black women in this country. Um, and as someone who looks every single day to make a better world for their daughter, those are the things that drive me um, and have driven me for over 25 years. So I am a, a political uh, advocate. Um, I am an award-winning political strategist, brand builder and marketer um, and crisis communications expert. Um, I've been in my field for about 25 years. I like to say that I, um, that I am young at heart. Age is just a number. It is. Um, and experience is everything. And is. so um, I have worked with some amazing people in my life, everyone from President Barack Obama uh, to some amazing um, other politicians like Mike Bloomberg after 9-11, helping to deliver New York City back um, as the epicenter of the world after those terror, terror attacks, mm -hmm. uh, working with uh, Cory Booker, who's now Senator, and I helped to find his entire social media strategy um, by putting him on Twitter um, and worked for some other amazing, great folks. And I've also worked for some not so great folks. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll, we'll come to that. We'll, 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 we'll come, come to that. that. Yeah, let, let, let's, yeah. Let, let's still stick to your childhood. <laughs> so uh, so yeah. I, 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 I love that the word purpose kept coming up. Yes, and purpose not. Yeah, and that that's you know, because I, mean, uh, I, I was uh, actually I listened to uh, Michelle Obama's podcast on my way to the studio today, and you know where, where she had her mom and her brother uh, talking about her upbringing, and there's a lot of similarities, you know, in the the way you, you talk about how your family instilled in you purpose and it wasn't just like a blind purpose but it was a purpose with uh with light i would put it that way there was a light to the purpose that was instilled in you where in the face of adversity you know you were still you still could look forward look to the light and say yes, yes. there's some there's an aim there's something to aim for you know yes. so i i really love that and i, I love this these are stories that I didn't get um, growing up, you know, for myself, and it was more about um, people who didn't look like us, you mm -hmm. know. So it, it, that's why it, it, it's in my adult years that I'm now, you know, connecting to st stories like this, and I'm seeing how I missed out on a whole lot of things. So 
it's another beauty of why I'm doing this podcast because I can show all this to my daughter and say, you don't have to, you know, yes, everybody exists in the world, but for when you look at people like your dad's, of your dad's skin color, you don't have to say, oh, we don't, um, we, we, we don't achieve, we don't, we don't know how to uh, um, go after our purpose. You know, we, yes. it's only, only one group that knows how to do it. No, you know, so it's that, that's one reason why I, I had to bring you on the, on the podcast too. So with that being said, um, I have to ask this question. What do you yeah. consider your most favorite or well, just say your, your favorite childhood memory? What would you consider your favorite childhood memory? Uh, I have a few. Um, I think my favorite childhood memory uh, is with my mother. Uh, there was a time period where we lived uh, in the Virgin Islands, uh, St. Thomas, uh, to be exact. And um, and there was this beautiful notion that we may not have known what the next day brought, right? We, mm -hmm. we didn't grow up uh, wealthy. <laughs> uh, my mother made ends meet uh, in a way that I'm still fascinated by today. Um, but what she always had was love uh, in her heart uh, for us. And she never, ever, ever told us that there were any limits to anything that we can do. And I can remember we were on the beach in St. Thomas and my mother looking out at the water and looking back at me, telling me, just remember you can do anything and no one, no one can stop you. Oh. And I remember really internalizing that, um, you know, my mother wasn't, um, uh, you know, she knew the obstacles that existed for a young black child and as a black yeah. woman herself. Um, but what she refused to accept is that those obstacles could define our path. Mm -hmm. um, what she imparted in me and along with my uh, sisters, I'm the oldest of three girls, is that we had so much power in who we were to be um, that it overshadows some of the challenges that she knew we would uh, come across. And if we were true in ourselves and driven by purpose and yeah. not position, we could accomplish anything. So that would be my favorite memory as a child, which was the, the knowledge that she imparted on me that there are no limits to what I can do. Wow. So that, that, that's, that's uh, my, my favorite question I always ask is the childhood memory. Because mm -hmm. there's always a thread that connects from that, from the answer given to whatever the guest is doing in the present day. So mm -hmm. that, that's why <laughs> I just love the answers I always receive from the, um, that question. So um, how, how long were you out there on um, the Virgin Islands? We lived there for about a year and a half. Um, and then we came back to the States. My grandfather had gotten sick. And so we had to come back oh. uh, to the state side and, and, and be with him. Um, but we went out there because I still have family there, okay. uh, and our family's kind of spread everywhere. Yeah. Um, we are an eclectic group of black family, uh, for a black family. We have everything in our family. I got Chinese Jamaican cousins. Um, <laughs> we have, That's beautiful. You know, yeah. When you, when you come to my house for, 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 for Thanksgiving, although not, not in the midst of COVID, but Obviously. prior to COVID, <laughs> You know, you would hear, you know, uh, Jamaican music in the background, you know, with some Spanish speaking aunts in the corner, 
um, but all part of the Black diaspora, right? And yes. so that's something that uh, really com combines all of us together. It's the fabric of what brings us together because it defines who we are. That's beautiful. So I've, I've never been that way to uh, the Virgin Islands. So I, I'll know that, you know, that it's an island, obviously, and, you know, so there's a beach and, you know. And, it's part of the U.S. Yeah. too. Yeah, so it, it took me a while to even figure that out, that it's part of the U.S., <laughs> Because I, I think there's also a British Virgin Islands. There is, yeah. So I so think that that was, that's what I was familiar with at first. Then I okay. found out that there was um, the U.S. Virgin Islands too. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So there's two. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you're also a citizen if you're from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was like, oh, wow, that is, yeah, yeah mind-blowing too. So And then I found out that a lot of black people are out there. So A ton. I mean, they yeah. own the island. <laughs> <laughs> So it was like, wait, extra surprise. <laughs> so um, for for someone who's not familiar with Virgin Islands, how, how would you describe it to um, those um, who aren't? Well, I mean, it, I think it's changed quite a bit. Um, I have not been there in some years, but um, the Virgin Islands to me was, uh, you know, a place of peace, um, but also a place of great complexity too, right? I mean, I think you know, just like any other Caribbean um, uh, country, you have a lot, you see lots of highs and you see lots of lows in mm -hmm. terms of people who have and people who don't. But I always say that the difference between seeing that those, those lows or those folks who don't have uh, in a place like Brooklyn or versus a place like Virgin Islands is the place in, you know, in Virgin Islands, you still got blue water. Still pretty. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's different when you wake up, right? And you look outside and you're like, huh, I mean, I have X, Y, and Z, but my environment is filling me with this peace and calm yeah. and happiness. And so I think, you know, that's one of my, my greatest memories of the Virgin Islands. And so what I tell folks is, you know, it, it, it you know, just like when I make my world travels as well, you know, the have and the have nots are different, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it really, Depends on the context in which in which people exist. Oh, all righty. So, well, moving forward, um, when did you begin to identify with the with, with the purpose of the part you know that you you now see yourself on? I, I so for me, and I tell young people this all the time. I do a lot of speeches. Um, and I talk to lots of, of young people who often find themselves in the midst of making some major life decisions. And so um, for me, I had a quarter life crisis, um, which really does exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was the first person in my family to graduate college, uh, to go to grad school. Um, I had gotten accepted to law school. And so I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and uh, spent uh, almost a year at working at one of the biggest law firms in the world in the country, um, uh, in, in New York City and Times Square. And I was working on a US tobacco case and I was working on another case uh, that was very well known at the time, Christie's and Sotheby's price fixing case. Essentially rich people stealing from other rich people, which I just did not get because I didn't come up with money. So <laughs> I that part, but whatever. Um, and I remember sitting across from a woman who had visible effects of smoking. Um, and she was a woman who was a black woman. Um, and I was on the other side of the table and she was looking at me as if I didn't belong or if I, you know, like I was on the wrong team. 
and I felt like crap. And I went home uh, that night and I cried to my mother and I told my mother, even though I'm making all this money and this is a great big law firm and all that great stuff that I just wasn't happy. Um, I didn't feel like I was fulfilling my purpose. And, um, and she said to me, you know, we do what makes you happy, you know, and then everything else will fall into place. And so I walked out of the law firm and I did what most people don't do, which is I went back and got a master's in in public policy and began my official journey into government. I wanted to understand this thing called government and, and how it was supposed to communicate with its people, what its role and responsibility was to its constituents, um, how public policy can help to shape people's lives, mm-hmm. um, and then how you can advocate from the inside, um, not only from the outside. From the outside and, yeah. um, and so that is essentially what helped to define my my career, um, and that's what I'm doing right now. Which is, but now I'm on the outside, which is even more exciting. <laughs> yeah, but you started from the inside, and so you yep. you 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 have a taste of both. Um, world, so you provide you, you provided a better perspective. Yes, in my opinion. 100%. Yeah. So uh, I, I like, uh, yeah, I like that you are able to talk about the crisis that uh, the, that we called it the midlife crisis and quarter life. Crisis. Oh, quarter life. Quarter. Sorry, quarter life crisis. <laughs> I correct myself. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that's one thing that uh, I've been on telling people like you know we need to do better in being more open and in the language that we use in especially like when we are we are talking to the younger ones because you know the examples that I got growing up you know it was always like oh this person went to school and then this is it they just knew what they wanted to do and that's it they found success and you couldn't like doubt yourself you couldn't ask questions and the moment you start, wait, am I on the right path? Is there something going on? Then you start, you're a failure. That's it. And yeah. the word failure was just like, that's the end. There's no recovery. Yeah. Totally throw you, throw you in the dump. But failure shouldn't be that, it shouldn't be something that is uh, as negative as that. You can bounce back from it. You should be able to ask that question, like, wait, am I on the right path? Is this where I want to be? And the moment you start asking that question, because like um, for, at my, I, you know, when I was much younger and you know, I'd said I wanted to be an athlete, yeah, I probably wouldn't have made it as an athlete, but that's, I, I just watched the Olympics for like two that. weeks. I just watched the Olympics for two weeks, but family got mad with me for saying that. And, <laughs> but the, the whole mentality for most of our families was, you either said you wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, accountant, um, engineer, yeah. and I think the fifth one was petroleum engineer, petroleum engineer, I was, I've forgotten what the fifth one was, but there was, or either he joined the, the Nigerian army and went in for general, because generals mm-hmm. were ruled by generals. So um, something like that. And it wasn't like there was any other thing outside of that. Mm-hmm. So when you said something that was outside of those big five, uh, they, either you got beat or they, they, chew, they chewed you out. Like, what is wrong with right. this kid? Right. Why can't you be like every other kid who wants to be in those, who's aiming for those fives? And like, wait, what, what about you? Are you doing one of those fives? 
And how dare you ask me a question? Shut up. And then, you know, and then later on, you start realizing, wait, the people who told you to aim for those fives, they never went for those fives. Right. <laughs> but they'll try to force you and then you started going for it. And then one day you woke up and like, no, I, I don't like, I, I, I just don't feel it. I'm not feeling it. I've been forcing myself and I hate it. I just hate the life. And yes, yep. this person is making so much money, but I'm comparing myself to somebody. And then later mm -hmm. on, there are people who will hear that I refuse to follow that path intentionally. And they're on that path. They're making money. And then they'll reach out to me like, hey, man, how did you do it? Right. <laughs> I said, do it. How did you get off the path and still make it? Right. They're like, I'm like, I haven't even made it. But I've I'm, I'm decided I'm, I'm pushing my happiness first. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I'm on right now. They're like, wow. But I, I wish I could. Because, you know, but I'm, I, you know, I have the money now. But uh, there's something. I, I'm, I just feel restless. And I'm like, are you happy? Mm. Have you answered that question? Can you answer that question? You, 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 you know, you got, you, you, you like, you can't even answer the issue of, uh, you, you can't even find somebody you love because everything is just like, it was a designed part you were giving. It wasn't you, right. you didn't even make your own part. Someone else said, this is how it should work for you. So go. I mean, you just yeah. jumped on that part and then you ended up with the, the not the wrong, I would say the wrong person. And then it's like you started a family, and then now it's like, wait, I, I can't, I can't. And the person, but the person doesn't know how to say, I can't. Not like you hit the person, but you ended up with the wrong person. So everything right, is just confusing now. And it, the hole keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm like, yeah. just, just so stop. Driven by other people. <laughs> and that's the thing, I think. And so I'm a huge believer that, you know, and I'm doing this even more now, which mm -hmm. is, you know, with vulnerability comes strength. Okay. Yeah. And so, Part of that is, and, and I'll be honest with you, you know, Black people along the diaspora, a lot of times, historically, we have not been allowed to be vulnerable, no. you know, and I can tell you from a Black woman standpoint, I have fell into these dangerous, dangerous tropes of strong Black woman, okay? Um, you know, historically, there have been uh, issues with the idea that Black women are so strong, we can bear all. Mm -hmm. um, put up with anything, and, but that's really a self-harming ideology because what that's saying is that we're not allowed to be soft. We're not allowed to say we need help. We're not allowed to not have it figured out. We're not allowed to be vulnerable. And in all of those things is the power. The real power is in being open and honest and authentic. And so, you know, I'm learning a lot more about that in my forties, I'll be honest with you, than I did in my late teens and early twenties. Um, I subscribe to those dangerous tropes of, you know, strong black woman and I, I can figure out and I can fix this and do that. Yeah. Now I'm just like, no, I can't fix it. I need help. <laughs> and I, I share that with yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of younger people too, because it's a dangerous stereotype to begin to live in, particularly for people who look like us, because that means that we are so focused on making sure that the world sees us a certain way yeah. that we keep everything inside. And when you do that, that increases your chance of stress. Yeah. We die more from stress than our white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Hands down. We die from hypertension, yeah. from diet, all of those things. And that's because we're not able to, a lot of us aren't able to figure out how we can be both authentic and show up as our true selves um, and vulnerable, you know, at the same time. And so that's something that I, you know, I'm pushing for 
as a mother, I want my daughter to see me that way. As a wife, I want my husband to know that I'm his true partner, but I also need help too. Um, And in the world, you know, I show up as a black woman in all my complexity and authenticity. Oh yeah, that's uh, something that I'm still working on recognizing and respecting when I see um, others, especially my black brethren, call out for help and show that vulnerable side. And I, I you know, you know, some you show of this is a weakness. I'm like, no, it's, it's not a weakness. Don't use that language of it's a weakness because um, we've all been victims to that messaging of we have to show strength 24 seven and mm-hmm. you can't, uh, you can't take a step back and reassess. And it's good for us to fix things. My, my, my uncle who, um, was like the closest person who my boy, my boy, I say my favorite uncle. He was my he used to be my favorite uncle, and um, he was just beginning to, you know, things were just beginning to happen for him. I think he was like forty five, if I'm not mistaken, around the age of forty four, forty five, and you know, the things were just happening for him. Everything was just booming, but he hardly took a break. He was, you know, I, I, sometimes I would hang out with him. I would go to his house. Um, we were living in Portaco then. Nigeria and I'll go to his house like 6 a.m. I'm at his house. He was he was already awake before 5 30 running around doing some stuff and this was we didn't have internet. <laughs> we didn't have the internet <laughs> but he's always awake. Cell phone will ring and whatever and then he's like okay we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go run to this place jump in the car run here run there run there run there and then he'll get him like midnight. I'm like uncle when when you take a break and he, he, some days you will see him he's, he started showing on his face like and then one day he was like, you know what, I need, I need, I should just take my wife, you know, I, I, someone will watch the kids and I'll just take my wife, we'll go somewhere. Two weeks, two weeks, you know, he was into politics also. His party chairman said, hey man, you work so hard for us, take a break. It's like everybody was seeing me, take a break, take a break. This kept coming up. He was like, yeah, yeah, but I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. And then almost a month later, yeah, um, we had he collapsed. He was in the hospital. No, no. But now the mindset that we have, because we don't recognize the, the language we had then, we don't, uh, we refuse to see that stress could bring somebody down. Yeah. So it's not recognized. Instead, someone already said, oh, uh, witches must have attacked him. It was supernatural. Oh. That was, that, that's where it was going. So I went to see him at the hospital. And he was, the, the doctor was like, yeah, you need to rest and all that, take medication. And he was already talking about, oh, I have meetings on Friday. It was, I saw him on, on, on Monday, I saw him on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, he was already talking about meetings on Friday. And I was like, uncle, you know, you got you to rest, you know, yeah. have rest. But he's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, but I'm good. The doctor said I'm good, right? You know, everything. And he's talking, this, that, that. He had a court case that Tuesday and he couldn't go to, it was in, in the next state, in, uh, in a city in the next state. So I had to go to the court and present a letter to the judge and say he couldn't come because he, he was also a lawyer. So um, I went there and represented him, just dropped the letter, and the judge uh, joined the case. That was the last time I saw him. The oh, Friday wow. he was supposed to be discharged, he, he died. That was the day oh, he died. Wow. And, but I don't think he, he really took a break while he was in the hospital. He was yeah. still trying to walk, do things, and yeah. all that. And after his death, you know, I was grieving. I've, I'd never been able to deal with that. 
I was angry. And was the first thing that I, my mind went to was some someone somebody had used witchcraft to get him. Every other person was saying that, and it would take years before the truth. Will, I'll finally admit the truth that this man never took a break. He never took a break. He never rested. He was just walking, 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 and it took a toll. It because it builds yeah. up. It builds up, and, and it sits on your shoulders. Yeah. And it. it creates unhealthy habits, unhealthy mm-hmm. environments. And, and I think, like I said before, you know, this is a wide issue a, a, along the diaspora, right? Along a, Around our people, because we have a history of working, 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 because we haven't had the luxuries historically of having vacations. Yes. Or we haven't had the luxury of being able to be on a yacht for a month or two weeks and mm-hmm. just to you know, you know, take in all the 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 nice uh, scenery, and so I think, you know, from from our standpoint, we we have also passed these down from generation to generation, um, and you know, it's partly true that for us to do to be as successful as our white counterparts, to be frank, that we have to work twice as hard and do twice as much. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a lesson and a, a, a narrative that folks have tried to present from generation to generation, but it's also dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. It also sets us up completely, it sets up a dichotomy between us and our, our, counter, our white counterparts to say that they can get away with a lot of stuff and we won't be able to, we won't be able to rest as much. We won't be able to relax. We have to work harder. We have to do more. We have to almost kill ourselves. And so I'm pushing back on that whole narrative and that whole history, even in the work that I do, because here's a reality. And a reality is that this world will kill you. It's true. You are black. This world will kill you, and I think we saw some of that, unfortunately, in the summer that happened last year. Whether you are Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, or whether you are George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? And so, if that is the world that we exist in right now, along with the injustices that are surrounding us, we have no choice, or we should have no choice, but to protect our peace, our sanity, and our health. And we have to figure out how to do that among ourselves and among our people every single day. True. Excellent. Yep. That's uh, an advice that I will never argue against. Because <laughs> since I came to the realization, I was like, yeah, I've been doing it wrong. And I quickly switched and I started advising the younger ones to see the light. And Good. hopefully Good. They, they see the light. So before I jump into the, the next question, which will focus more on your travels, Yes. And then um, jump into the politics. Um, yeah, we de- jump uh, deeper into politics. Um, I will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Your host, Raphael Harry here. I can't believe we have gone past our one year anniversary of doing White Label American. I've had the privilege of speaking with some amazing people sharing their modern-day immigrant stories. And you've allowed this Nigerian immigrant to share parts of his immigrant journey through this podcast. Also, one of my goals of this podcast is breaking down artificial walls that keep people from getting to understand each other. Based on your wonderful feedback over the last year, I think we have done a decent job in breaking down some of those walls. We would like to 
continue and expand on this mission, but we need your help. I've had an amazing time creating and producing episodes for this show largely on my own. We have a lot of ideas for new and exciting content to expand upon the mission, but we need direct support from you, our listener, which is why we have created a White Label American Patreon page where you can make a one-time donation or become a sustaining contributor where you can get access to exclusive content. Help me interview upcoming guests by submitting questions and even have the chance to sit down with me for a one-on-one conversation, either virtually or in studio. So if this podcast means something to you, and if you really love this show, think about becoming a sustaining contributor and donating by going to patreon.com slash whitelabelamericanpod. Thanks for listening and for the privilege of your company. Welcome back. And thank you for joining us. So, as someone who has traveled extensively around the country, internationally, what are some of the most memorable experiences that stand out to you mm-hmm. and have affected your you, the way you 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 handle your your you go about your career um there are two specific trips that stand out uh well there's there's three so let me um i'll do it in a timeline order which is the first time i went to tel aviv um in israel i was completely taken aback by how beautiful it was um because of all of the pictures and the, the, the trauma that you see on TV about this country mm-hmm. uh, and the fighting, right? The only thing I knew of Israel uh, was that there were groups of people always fighting. Yeah. <laughs> um, one for, you know, acknowledgement and the other for um, uh, keeping what they have. And so um, although I'm sure they'll both say something different. This is me <laughs> as an observer. Um, and so the first time I went to Tel Aviv, it was amazing. The beaches were beautiful. Um, but I was there uh, getting some work done. And I remember the folks that I was there with, they were taking me out on a night on, on the town. And, and later that evening, we had to travel with um, armed guards because it wasn't safe. And this was just kind of the norm for them. And I could not imagine having to live my life like that every single day. Um, And then later on in the trip, I actually had meetings in Palestine. And um, I remember looking on the map, looking for it. Yeah. And I couldn't find it. And my tour guide was telling me, of course, you can't find it because the Israel, because uh, the Israelis don't recognize it as a territory. So it wouldn't be on the map that you're looking at. And that mm-hmm. completely confounded me because I was like, I am going to this place. I know it exists. I have meetings here, but there are literally people who won't even acknowledge that this whole group of people have settled here, live here. Yep. I was completely um, just kind of flabbergasted with 
uh, the kinds of struggles that I know as a Black American in this country, but also the but was made aware now of the struggles that other people have in other countries of simply just even wanting to be acknowledged for their existence. Um, and it was so disheartening for me. Um, and so that was one of the greatest realizations that we are in this global society and we're interconnected in ways that we just don't know how. Mm -hmm. um, the more information we know about each other, uh, the more knowledge we share, and then the more wiser we can be. Um, my other uh, interesting trip was I went to India and I had a big speaking engagement there. And I, I got to stay in this amazing hotel and it was so beautiful. And then I stepped outside into New Delhi and I was completely flabbergasted with the amount of poverty that I saw. And this is poverty. You know, I grew up in poverty in Brooklyn, New York. You know what I mean? Yep. Like I know what poverty is, but poverty in India was something completely <laughs> Like it's a different it's like, level. It's a different level. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, again, this is why I, I love to travel and I have businesses, you know, uh, abroad. I, I love to remind myself, regardless of how many struggles we have within the diaspora in this country as Black people, what I remind myself of is that this is still the greatest country in the world, despite and in light of the atrocities that still happen yes. um, because the reality in other countries is that poverty is different, mm -hmm. that inadequacy and injustice is completely different, oh, yeah. you know, in other countries. And so, you know, I, I have this global perspective now where I understand the context in which I exist, how I can influence, um, and then how I get my knowledge to make my decisions. Um, and then the third uh, place story is, you know, uh, there's a, a part of Pennsylvania that people call Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, wow. They call it Pennsylvania because it is literally like the country. Okay. Literally. <laughs> um, and so I remember working, this is when I was working on the campaign in 2012, I helped to lead Pennsylvania for President Barack Obama. We uh, did it rather successfully. And I had an event out there in Western Pennsylvania and I was met with a noose wow. and I didn't know what it was. I literally didn't know what, I was like, that looks like a weird rope. Um, and then someone said, Desiree, that's a noose. And I was like, oh, they trying to hang me? <laughs> like, like, we're doing that in 2012? Um, but it was a precursor, interestingly enough, right? Mm -hmm. To some of the angst and anger that some people had about the level of diversity that was happening uh, around the country um, and, and, and their idea of who was getting power and who was being left behind. Oh, yeah. And so for me, that was like, there's a realization that even in this country, there, there, are, there are areas like that. And you, you saw that unfortunately um, on January 6th when many of those folks stormed the Capitol. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you saw that there are folks from areas throughout the United States who feel left behind. Now, whether it is justified or not, because I have my opinions about that. No, oh, I do. Um, matter, <laughs> right? But what they feel mm -hmm. is they feel left out. They feel forgotten. They feel betrayed. And it's crazy to think that so many folks can feel that way, even if the facts don't um, line up. Yep. Uh, 
that way. And so for me, those would be three distinct trips, right? So Tel Aviv, um, India, and then, uh, you know, the Western part of Pennsylvania, which is called Pennsylvania, in terms of understanding how my travels have helped to, to guide me and my work. So uh, your story, your experience in India uh, reminded me of um, when I was in the Navy and uh, I think it was one of my chiefs was talking about growing up in poverty. He, he was born here and he was like, uh, if you never had, uh, if, if anyone never had government cheese, um, they can't talk to him about growing up in poverty. And... <laughs> And I was like, uh, well, um, to be honest, you know, I, I never had cheese in my life until I was about twenty five, or I don't, even, well, I, I don't think we, we, our government, we never had our government don't give us cheese, you know, where I grew up, <laughs> if government give you food, you lucky, you you have to be highly connected for government to give you food. So, um, I, yeah, when you when you you say that because he he was trying to claim the king of. Well, he grew up in. He was like the king of poverty or somewhere. Poor and hardship. And I, I was like, yeah, there are other people here who have seen some poverty that uh, I don't know. It's like they they consider you rich. <laughs> Growing right? up in wealth, <laughs> comparison. Right? And I was supposed to be. Um, I grew. I started off in middle class, and then things changed, and then I dropped. So even in the middle class level, I never had running water. <laughs> in my life for, yeah so it was only once that we had running water when we lived in this highbrow estate and where we, I, where I experienced racism without even knowing what racism was so I never knew it was racism I was going through but after uh, much later by the time I, I, my teenage years uh, into my young adult years there was no running water you you, you calculated wow. um, when you ate food you know I was I got to be homeless but there was you know so it's like Hearing that there's welfare and all this stuff, yeah, yeah I'm like, no government gives you that <laughs> back home. You have to be, you have to be either willing to die for that government. Like, oh, during election time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go snatch ballot boxes for you. I'll do some right. crazy stuff for you. Don't worry. And then you get paid peanuts. Right. And then he, so he, he's staring at me like, what? I said, yeah, man, I never ate cheese until I, 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 I if I, all my money I had, I was like, why would I go buy cheese? <laughs> right. It was too expensive. That was a luxury for me. So until right. I moved to the United States, and it still affects me to this day because you, you have to remind me because I haven't implanted it in my brain that I can afford to buy cheese now. So if I go to, right. to, buy, to the grocery <laughs> store, I buy every other thing, and it's like I walk past cheese because it's still not in here, but it was only in my textbooks as a kid. Like, oh, cheese. People eat cheese. Okay. You okay. just read it. But you, you're not planning to eat cheese. Never. Pizza, I, I think the first time I tried pizza was about uh, 12, 13, and one of my one of my wealthier um, cousins had come back from London. She claimed she brought pizza with her. I don't know if she brought it from London or whatever. It was bad pizza she gave me. I tasted it. I was like, oh, this is terrible. It was bad. <laughs> oh that was the God. first and the last time I tried pizza until I left Nigeria. I couldn't afford it. Now, there's pizzas everywhere. It's much more right. affordable. But during my time, it wasn't. It was a luxury. Even, even right. chicken, uh, goat yeah. meat, you ate that on your birthday, Christmas Day, Easter <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was that's, that's why context is so important, right? Because... 
you know, mm. we talk about each other, and that's why there's so much within the diaspora, right? And you go, you, you mentioned this before, mm-hmm. this is why we got to talk about our experiences too, you know, because like I said, poor and, and <laughs> poor in Brooklyn was real different than yeah. poor, like, you know, running water wasn't a question, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not getting the shoes that I wanted, you mm-hmm. know, not being able to afford that kind of stuff, but you know, it, it, your reality is defined by the context in which you exist. Yeah. And I think uh, for, for many of us, we can forget that. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I, I am often reminded when I travel abroad, how grateful I am. Um, but it also helps me to understand that I can perpetually criticize this country as well. I always, I love this quote. Um, and uh, this is a, a quote from, James Baldwin, and he says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Oh, yes. I, I remember so, that quote. Yeah. So there is power <laughs> to me in helping the systems in this country, the people in this country to represent the ideals of democracy, the ideals of meritocracy, and the yeah. ideal of justice. Um, because I don't know if there's another place greater than this in the world, but we haven't gotten it right in this country, um, which is why we continue to, or why I continue to engage in battles to, to, to fight and make sure that we get to those ideals as much as we possibly can. And it's something, even, even when we get it right, we sh- it's not something that we should stop there. We still have to keep making oh, yeah. it better and better. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lifelong process until the day is world no longer exists. You're um, absolutely right. That, we should always be fighting and can, mm-hmm. and I'd say that we should always be uncomfortable, right? The yeah. day that you are comfortable in anything in life, right? That means that you are complacent. Exactly. That means that you no longer want to, you know, put the energy and effort into making something even much more greater. And so I, I never want to be that complacent. I always want to feel hopeful about the more, mm. the progress, um, and the continued push for what I think can be great, not just good. Exactly. Oh, quick, quick uh, point on um, news. Uh, yes. Actually, the first time someone uh, in boot camp, someone made a news during my basic training, and I didn't know, and I defended the person. It took me years. It took me a year later to realize, like, yeah, he was a racist. He, he's a racist because oh. <laughs> I was. He, he befriended me. He was ironing my clothes and doing my polishing my shoes for me. And the other black guys were like, "Why? Why? Why are you? Why are you really? cool with this racist?" He made a noose. I was like, "Are you sure? Are you sure it wasn't like a rope? You know, he was a knot. He was tying." And I was thinking I was woke then, and I was yeah, I was, oh, wow. yeah, man, yeah. So later on, we ended up at the same duty station, but he was at a different command, and he he kept getting into trouble. All all the black, um, well, all our, all our instructors in boot camp they were black, and okay. they didn't like him because they knew he was a racist. But he was well connected. He came from a wealthy okay. family, so he didn't get kicked out in in basic training. But my senior chief said to him, one of our senior chiefs said to him on our graduation day, that I give you three months, you'll be kicked out of the navy. He made it past three months, and then he got to his duty station, got into trouble first time, second time, and then the third time, he was right outside the base. Normally, he would have called me for um, something if he got in trouble, and then he 
he got drunk. He didn't call me and then drove into a shopping center. What? So, so I guess they, they just got tired of bailing him out and sent him. Oh, my him, gosh. They, but they, they, still, they still try to save him. They sent him to an anger management class, and then he beat somebody up there. And then, <laughs> right, man, get, get out, get out. He needed more than that. He needed yeah. more than that. But, but. it was... It, it was obvious that you know, not look looking back as I look, I was like, oh yeah, these guys are he, he's a racist, like yeah. Oh, wow. But I, I I was the guy who defended him in boot camp, like oh no, I don't think that was a noose, but it was a noose. I'd never no, nobody had done that around me before, so it was my first time. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's funny. Yeah. I, I had this question the other day. I I don't think um, you know, and this is all debatable in this country. For other countries, it, the things are different, but in this country, I do not believe that. Uh, black people can be racist because racism deals with power and structure. Yes. Um, and so prejudice, sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, yeah, we can be prejudiced till the cows come home. But my personal opinion, and it's, you know, like I said, supported by, uh, you know, research and study and data analytics and facts, is that racism deals with power and structure. And as such, Black people in this country don't have, we are not the power structure no. in this and so because we are not the power structure in this country, we do not own that, uh, which means that we um, are not the predominant force and therefore can't be uh, racist as the folks who have who don't have that power. Oh, yeah. um, and so, you know, this is always a hard question to to have with folks. And what I, what's funny is I'm going to turn the tables on you for a second. I got a question for you, sure, go ahead. Which, is, <laughs> which is, you know. Um, I was having this conversation with a woman who um, who, who was who's an African woman, um, and and we used to have these conversations, and I could never understand why. And this has happened this summer, you know, when the power and the push uh, and the 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 uh, illumination of Black Lives Matter came out again. And I have to remind people, Black Lives Matter did not start this summer. Of course, okay. Yep. Um, Black Lives Matter as a movement began after Trayvon Martin was killed. Yes. And since been a movement um, and an organization. And so this summer just illuminated globally the power of Black Lives Matter um, and that message, that narrative and, and its purpose. Um, but there was a woman who, who I was trying to befriend um, and, and she, was a, a, she was an African woman <clears throat> who did not wanna talk to me about race. And she said <clears throat> that Africans don't talk about race as much because it makes them uncomfortable and I said, well, here's the difference. You know, when you're in the US and you pulled over by a cop or you have an encounter with a cop, the cop's not gonna ask you what tribe are you from? Yeah. Right? The cop is gonna see that you're black. Yes. Period. <laughs> and because of that already implicit bias may treat you significantly different than he would treat someone who didn't look like you and was, you know, your white counterpart. And so there has to be this kind of understanding within the diaspora that we are all connected. You don't have a luxury of not talking about the things that impact us all. Mm -hmm. So question for you is, do you feel that there is a, um, that there's a disconnect between folks who have literally come from Africa and African-Americans here and, and the understanding of black, of the black plight or the, 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 um, the fight for black lives matter. Does uh, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh, that's a, a, it all boils down to the language that a whole mm. lot of us were raised in and, and raised with. So like this week of um, uh, the Martin Luther King's uh, Junior's day, 
in yep. the city where I grew up in, where I spent a lot of my formative years in Benin City, it's a big holiday among some of the private schools. And I mm -hmm. happened to attend one of the biggest ones there, Word of Faith College, owned by um, a popular late archbishop who is quite popular with many of the evangelicals here because he used to bring them over there. Mm -hmm. And why was that a big deal for us? It was a day where if you could recite the I have a dream speech mm -hmm. and the person who recited it in Queen's English, the best, tended to win, you know, they'll pick a winner, the person who gave the best recitation of the speech, you get to, you, they pick you as the winner, you got like a one-year scholarship. It ended up being someone from the the the, um, the elites who ended up winning. <laughs> Those of us at the bottom never won, unfortunately. But that's how the day became um, celebrated. I have okay. a dream speech was all it got reduced to. And you never got to understand what Martin Luther King was about because all it just boiled down to, oh, he wants black and white people to just come together. Right. And as soon as he got assassinated, then everything worked out because the Civil Rights Act was signed. Mm -hmm. So no more racism. That becomes oh, the mentality the that a lot of people um, adopt. And then you see white preachers coming down um, to this um, evangelical who has like a huge church. He's like one of the richest uh, uh, pastors. And he's not in Lagos, which is the biggest, the mega city. He's in Benin City, which is a smaller city, but he's able to attract these big guys. So white people are coming here, so how's their racism? But these are white people who, when Barack Obama was president, these are the guys who were actively, openly saying racist things against right. him. But right. those people, they, 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 you can't tell people in Nigeria that, those, that pastor was racist. No, that guy came to Nigeria and was praying for us, laying hands on black people. So how can he be racist in America? It doesn't make yeah. sense. In Uganda, the white evangelicals who have been going there to tell the president pass anti-gay laws, you can how are you going to they're like they're Christians. So how can we say those are bad people? You you can't because it doesn't add up to the what the, the messaging they've been receiving. Seven hundred club used to be on our state and national TV daily. Yeah. Um what's his name? The guy on seven um Pat, is it Pat Robinson? I've forgotten his name, the old guy. Yeah, 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 he's, yeah. He's full of so many racist things. All he's, the time. But yes. we we ate that guy's words daily. So now look how many people have been consuming his language, including Muslims. I know many Muslims who watch that show. And then you start when when so I, there are people who were like, no, this guy is wrong. But when you met those people, you were like, this person is a, a bad influence. I don't like you because right. you're not saying the truth. The truth is that man because he's a Christian and we are Christians. So that begins, the, the the wall starts being built that way. So when we arrive here, we now say black Americans are lazy because they've had all the opportunity. They don't want to do what's right. They don't know what's right for them. We know what's better because we've been communicating with the right people and then reality uh, hits us and then it's like, wait, what? Right. Racism? <laughs> I thought Martin Luther King solved this. Wait, 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 what's happening? And then, you know? Uh, so like I've had um three guests on on the podcast two of them attended um HBCUs one mm -hmm. um was the uh, one is the first LGBTQ guest that I had and she grew up in Lagos something similar when she arrived there she only mixed with white people and then she attended a HBCU and yeah. it was like whoa what is all this 
bubble. Yeah. The, the other guy too from Congo attended HBCU and it just changed his whole perspective on how he saw black people. And that's one regret I have. I'm, I wish I had attended HBCU. I probably would have gotten out of my shell a lot uh, <laughs> earlier. But I'm glad at least I still got out. And it's the, it began to make sense. When I talk to people back home and some are like, oh, Trump, I like Trump. But I don't like what my the same leader doing the same thing Trump is doing in Nigeria or in other African right. countries. I hate that person. And I'm like, so you like the white version, but right. you hate the black one. Right. And they're like, no, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, that's not what I said. That's but, not right, but, but it's like you don't Trump have to says it, he says it as it is. And I'm like, but your leader is saying it as it is too. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing the exact same thing. <laughs> so thing. it's all these things, but we've been constructing the, the messaging we've been getting for, for years, even on yeah. the Arab side, we, it's the same thing, but we don't really talk to each other. We don't really know people, right. but so this right. communication thing has been going yeah. and going and going. And then we now start to realize that, wait a minute, this is all wrong. Right. You know, who's been giving you the message? Where have you been consuming the message from? Why is Fox News popular in Nigeria? Why do you think Fox News cares about you? Why is Fox News popular in your places? But some of you still say, oh, I like Barack Obama, but I wish he wasn't pushing gay agenda. What do you mean by gay agenda? Did gay people <laughs> just fell out of the sky within, or, or, within the, the, the years Obama popped out? Or all languages in Nigeria have a word for gay. They, they knew what gay people were before the British arrived. So there's certain things that... You yeah. start seeing that there's a lot of fighting going on. Like on Twitter, I see some of it, but it's still not, it's only a few people that are on Twitter. So okay. we don't have, it's not, you know, there's, so it's still a large amount of the population who, yeah. one would talk. My mom, she's moved back to Nigeria now, but she's always been a Democrat while she was here. But she is hardcore conservative, hardcore. Really? Hardcore. And now she's in Nigeria, she's telling me she's not going to take the vaccine. She's 84 years old. Wow. And I said, why? And then she sends me a video. Who's the person on the video? It's a governor who's saying the vaccine is for white people. Only white people died from COVID, so we don't need it. But the guy had COVID and he got treated. Right. <laughs> she left that part out, but I knew already. But she's not aware yeah. that I know. And I said, well, what is all this going on? But all the That's misinformation it. is coming in and you see all that and you try to talk to people and they're like, well, you know, Trump, Trump if he hadn't said that shit all comment, you know, I won't, I, that, and then I'm like, wait, yo, so you all are defending him? That's <laughs> like there was big parties in part of Nigeria after the election. I'm like, why you all, what are you having a party for? Right. There. And they're like, well, BLM, like uh, one of my friends who, who, was in, who was in Germany, he was mad at me, beginning of BLM, uh, before this, uh, this was uh, in 2016. He was mad at me about BLM. And then really? I asked him one day, I said, you always come at me for BLM, but... What happened? What when we're in Nigeria? What did the police do to us? Mm. How did we? He was like, "Well, that's different." I said, "Are you sure?" Okay, well, all right. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let that slide. Then NSARS begins. NSARS, yeah. When NSARS, then he's not. Oh yes, get them. And I'm like, okay. So I know how many of you used to actually write to me in private that the stuff I posted on my Facebook about Black Lives Matter. You all said. Bro, this is too much. Nigerians should not get involved. We don't need to. This is not our business. It's for only black people. It's only black right. Americans. We don't, it, we, this is not our business. Then answers happens. Then you all start shouting, and I'm like, "How's that different?" Wow. The same wow. Nigerian police gets trained by the British. Yeah. When Nigeria got independence, the British 
were in charge of our police. The British started our police. Nobody asked, what kind of training did you give them? They're still following yeah. that same timetable to this day. So why wouldn't they kill you? And nobody so, asked that. So it's always been the language. You're, you're talking, you are spitting fire right now because it's true. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm serious because here's the issue, right? So the justification for slavery was mm -hmm. based in Christianity, right? And also, so was the justification that black people were somehow less than and should be servants and serve the masters who were white folks. Yes. Based in Christian, based in old Christianity, I should say. And that's the same Christianity that worked on colonization, yes. right? That fed colonization. And so, you know, I, I, you, you see this, uh, it's unfortunate. Our people are so, we've been so traumatized and, and, and brainwashed mm -hmm. and hooked for so long that, you know, these systems still have us hating ourselves. Oh yeah, that, that, that was always the goal. It was never to question the people who brought the message. It was for the receivers to fight with themselves. Right. It is it is crazy. And even in even here where you have even separation right between dark skin and light skin folks yep. who closer to white and how that's closer to pretty and all those stereotypes. I mean, it's a I feel like as a people, we have the most work to do. Mm -hmm. um, I know there are tons of folks out there who believe they are the chosen ones. I believe we are the chosen people as black people across the diaspora, so much so that we have so much work to do to acknowledge our um, our power that we have and our powerful history that we have and to own it, right? Because yeah. I think our history has been subverted by colonization. I think our history has been subverted by people trying to take advantage of the very beauty they knocked us down for. Mm -hmm. I think, our, you know, our, um, our, our history is, is a powerful history, but we are the ones who have to figure it out that we have the power and that, that we are beautiful as a, um, as a diaspora of people from the lightest one to the darkest one, oh, right? Yes. One on the homeland to the one here in the U.S. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think that we have to acknowledge, we have to begin to, to bring that um, and hone those messages and to teach our children the same, right? That they should be, you know, proud of who they are. And that's why, you know, as we gear up for celebrating, you know, MLK Day, you know, in the U.S. on... Um, and then also getting ready to gear up for the shortest month of the year, which is Black History Month. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, will, this will be the first episode of Black History Month, by the way. Yeah. So th <laughs> this will be, you know, um, it is a constant reminder that our history is not just defined by a month. Yeah. Our history is not defined by the shortest month in the year, mm -hmm. but our is defined and interwoven in this country. And in fact, we are the backbone that has defined this country. Our uh, ancestors built the White House, right? Oh, yeah. And so that is, there's power in that. We've literally built the bedrock of this democracy and this country was built on our backs. And so I think we as a people have to acknowledge our own power and begin to yield that power in a, in a, um, in, in a way that uh, really illuminates um, our history um our presence uh and allows us to have bright futures that's that's my hope for for all of us me too I, I like that and i agree with it so i know we're uh, you're running out of time so i, I don't want to hold you too long so just two quick questions to wrap it up uh, i can't leave you i can't let you go without finding out from your travels um has your favorite cuisine been affected by your travels or do you still stick to your 
to your uh, your 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 local cuisine. Which where where's your favorite cuisine come from? I my my cuisine is food. Period. <laughs> <laughs> You like food. me. <laughs> I, literally, I love eating. So I, there is, I love food. The, the one thing I can't eat is anything ugly or cute. <laughs> ugly meaning like, okay. you know, like yeah. a conch. I, I can't do conch. Uh, right? Yeah. I can't do that because it's an ugly animal, I think. And I can't do anything cute. I can't eat Bambi. Sorry, I don't eat rabbit. Um I don't eat deer. I, I can't do any of that stuff. Well, but, it, but, but like rabbits, you, you don't have, it, if it's, you know, stewed and all that, you're not looking at the cute rabbit when it's being killed and peeled and all that? No, I don't want, I can't eat rabbit because it's too cute. Well, I've eaten rabbit though, but I, I, I did, I like rabbits. You like rabbits? Yeah, I love rabbits, but. Yeah, dude, I can't do it because I, I, I can't. I can't do the, the like as a kid. You know, they'll make you kill the chicken back home, prepare it yourself, kill it. I don't kill nothing. I just want like fried yeah. chicken. It's great to me. I'll you know I'll eat it fried. That's great. I'll eat it baked, fried. You know, but I can't do so for, for me. Cuisine, food, anything that's not cute or ugly, I will eat. It's all, all right. good. <laughs> then um, music. Yes. I have an eclectic taste of music. So it's everything from Mozart um, to, you know, some of the new from Cardi B and Beyonce. Oh, I love Cardi B. So all over the place. It really depends on my mood. Like, like when I write, um, so I'm a published author. I've co-written three books and, oh, and I forgot one of them is an international. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of them is an international bestseller. So when I was co-writing my piece, you know, I, I like classical music because it helps me, uh, it helps me write and be creative. Um, when I am, you know, doing my social justice work, then I will listen to some Cardi B and some Beyonce. I'll even listen to some John Legend. Um, you know, when I am trying to do my workout, I'll listen to some old school DMX. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's the, uh... Old school DMX, either it makes yeah. you want, is it that you, yeah, that, that's just workout music because it, may, it that's the kind of music you're listening to if you want to go fight somebody or. DMX. Oh, man. I, I saw um, a clip on um, Instagram. Somebody sent me the clip where DMX was complaining. Uh, 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 he was in prison and he had the, the pink jumpsuit on and that was the, his complaint was he he couldn't he he, uh, he had he had to change his life because he's wearing pink this is too much i i can't do this anymore that That's, was the realization that, that was the realization of <laughs> yeah this is it my life I, I can't do this anymore wearing pink really oh no, my no, no. god I, 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 Everybody was commenting like, um, so you didn't realize that you, your life right. needed to change <laughs> when you went to prison for like a thousand times. It was, <laughs> it was when they gave you pink uniform and you're like, ah, uh, no, 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 no. This is it. I, I'll draw the line here. I'll draw the line. Whatever makes him realize it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, DMS, gotta love him. <laughs> he was huge in Nigeria uh, he too. Huge. He was that huge. That was my boy. <laughs> oh, oh, man. So I, I could do an episode with you for like three hours, honestly. I know. I know there's, there's a whole lot I, I didn't get to cover, but I'll, I'll but just... But you got to have me back. We'll figure oh, out yeah. another time. We'll, we'll, we have to. We have to. Most definitely we will. So awesome. uh, final question. What yeah. would you like to leave the audience with? 
could be a quote from your book, could be a quote from a book you've read, could be a quote from one of your favorite people you've worked with, or just something that inspires you. Um, one thing that I always say to folks, and I mentioned it um, here in our talk, is you know there is power in being uncomfortable, um, especially right now in, in this country. I think you uh, we have a lot of people who feel that there's significant division in who we are as a nation um, and whether or not we have truly lived up to our ideals. There are communities that are hurting severely uh, because of COVID-19 and the disparate impact of communities of color. Um, and also, you know, injustices in the criminal justice system that people have been fighting. Um, and so, including myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think what I always tell people is be uncomfortable. And when I say uncomfortable, I mean, the only way I think that we as a country can begin to, I don't want to say mend, but can begin to acknowledge that we have still some challenges um, that we have to give voice to. Uh, for some folks is if we become and show up authentically in, in ourselves. And so one of the things that I've been able to do, I did these chat and chews across the country. I began to do these after 2016. And this was as a result of the election uh, where I began to have and bring together different women from across the country and across the world to sit down and have hard conversations about not what defines us and what is differentiates us, mm -hmm. but the things that bring us together. Um, and so these are Republican independent, these are Black Lives Matter advocates, um, and these are, one woman was a self-defined white nationalist. Um, so at the end of this conversation, what we realized was when we showed up in who we were, a lot of those stereotypes like you were talking about were dismissed and dispelled, I don't wanna say dismissed, were dispelled, right? Mm -hmm. So the white woman who was a self-defined white nationalist assumed that black people were all violent and uneducated. Um, but she was also sitting across from a woman who was a Black Lives Matter advocate and had graduated from Howard Law. And so her mere presence of showing up at this convening hmm. challenged her notion of who she thought black people were. And I think that's what we have to continue to do, which is to really show up authentically and have some hard civil, I'll say that again, civil conversations about what defines us uh, as people while also highlighting some of those things that make us unique, right? I always mm. say, I'm a black woman. So when people say, I don't see color, what I hear them saying to me is that they don't see me. Exactly. And, that's, um, and so I'll go back to what I said, be uncomfortable, do something you haven't done before, right? If yeah. you really want some progress, even in your individual lives, if you don't wanna do the social justice, political stuff or politics, that's fine. I don't know how you can get away from it, but that's fine. But living a life full of comfort means that you have stopped to want to progress. And so I always tell folks to put a little fire up under them and mm -hmm. be uncomfortable. All righty. Sounds great. And that's fantastic advice. I knew you dropped plenty of gems. So <laughs> that was never a doubt for me. So uh, did you still have the discussions going on? Uh, so we're looking to ramp them back up in May, okay. um, smaller conversations. And so you can go to my website and check that out, which is www.desireepeterkinbell.com. Um, all of the information about our toured um, locations will be on that site.
All right, I'll add that to the show notes. That was going to be um, the next thing I was going to ask about how people and can get in touch with Twitter. you. All right, yeah. Bell. <laughs> DP Bell. Yes. All right, yes. I'll add that to the show notes too. So please follow uh, Desri on um, Twitter and go on the website. You know, I'll add everything to the show notes. Find it there. And yeah, she is fantastic. There's so much more to this woman that, you know, it's just... It's greatness, 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 greatness. Thank you. I appreciate it. Can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. And I look forward to working with you and doing more great stuff. Yes. Thank you so much for giving voice uh, to me. And thank you to your listeners as well. It's been a pleasure. All righty. So to everyone listening, don't forget to come back for the next episode and um, keep the love coming. And uh, thank you for the privilege of your company. Thanks for listening to White Label American. If you enjoyed the show, we'll appreciate if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at White Label American. Thank you for your support.